1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of The Channel, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Jonathan Lee about his new book, Afghanistan A History from 1260 to the Present, published in 2018 by Reaction Books. Jonathan Lee is a social and cultural historian and a leading authority on the history of Afghanistan. He has lived for many years in Afghanistan and is a fellow of both the Royal Asiatic Society and the British Institute of Persian Studies. He's also formerly a fellow of the British Institute of Afghan Studies. His previous books include The Journals of Edward Sterling in Persia and Afghanistan, 1828-1829, to published in 1991, The Ancient Supremacy, Bukhara, Afghanistan, and the Battle for Balkh, 1731-1901, to published in 1996, and Amazing Wonders of Afghanistan, published in 2014. Jonathan, thanks for coming to the show. Thank you very much. And good day from down under in New Zealand. To begin our conversation today, I, I wanted to just um, break into your motivations for writing this book. You know, we have lots of histories of Afghanistan, um, and yours is, is per- particularly commendable for the, the amount of detail you provide. Um, but I'm just curious. Um, yeah. What were your motivations for writing the book and, and how do you see your book fitting into the broader field of Afghan history?
0: Well, I, uh, it's, um, initially, actually the, the publisher approached me, um, because he'd recommended, I've been recommended to, to me by, um, another scholar, uh, Finbar flood and, um, he said "Well, would you like to do this history in afghanistan we have this series and i i said i was interested in it and and but i'd always wanted to find time or to actually write about afghanistan a more kind of coherent history um so i took the opportunity because i didn't realize what i was letting myself in for (laughs) and uh, it was uh, the book just grew and grew and grew on me and um, the more i delved into it the into the history the more i Came to discover the things that I had kind of assumed as as um, being essentially the real history of Afghanistan became a lot more dubious, and I started to question things. And I'd also brought, I brought in a lot of my own personal experience of of traveling a lot in Afghanistan, spending sort of hours and days and weeks sitting down talking with people and. I realized I think from from my own experience in the country that there was actually an alternative discourse to what you might call the the, the sort of government sponsored nationalistic um, history, but also the colonial histories which which still tends to dominate um, the histories of Afghanistan written by western authorities and so I wanted to try and you know, let's go back to the beginning and and start again and, and let's just try and reconstruct the whole building from, um, from, the, from the ground upwards rather than just sort of, you know, trying to put a new coat of paint on on the existing building. Uh, and <laughs> it's been quite a journey. <laughs> and, uh, quite a lot of things have come up that have taught me a great deal in doing the research. Um, and uh, sometimes I, I despaired I'd ever finish it but uh fortunately managed to get it all done and dusted and the publisher was, was happy with what was probably the one of the largest books that they've ever published. So it's worked out very well in the end.
1: Yeah, and and I think we'll kind of get into that a little bit uh during our discussion today, because I'd like to hear like how your book um kind of counters some of those Western kind of grand narrative histories of Afghanistan, and also um, the kinds of narratives that we we see happen- coming from the state today in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hope that we can illuminate a little bit of that uh, during our discussion today. But before we get to some of those questions, I was curious if you could tell us about um, your research process, what kind of source materials you found, where did you go to get these sources? Um, and and just in general, how did you approach uh, your research?
0: Well, I, I think probably the foundation of it is based on, on the work that I did in the 1980s and nineties for the the book on the Asian supremacy, which, which led me to the India office library and records in the British library in London, which at that, point were not really being used and utilised by scholars who tended to use secondary sources a lot. Um, and I think it was Malcolm Yatt's um, history on strategies of British India which really sort of illuminated the fact that there was this huge resource of information, um, primary sources and re- you know, reports that come from intelligence sources in Afghanistan and the Wakeel reports. And, Many other things um, on which, of course, the secondary sources sometimes were based, and uh, I spent on and off about twenty years in and in and out of the library there, digging through there, and um, it, that has still provided really one of the foundations for um, for my research, and indeed a growing number of of other uh, students of Afghan studies, um, because the I mean there's miles and miles and miles of these records. Um I think my other thing is that I've I was using the normal sort of standard secondary histories, but um there are stories and anecdotes and, and personal recollections of, of Afghans themselves um who have alternative histories and alternative stories and alternative views on, for example, the, the state promoted nationalist discourse and working a lot in areas outside of the the sort of southern dominated Pashtun zone, I mean places in the Hazarajat, in Herat in many parts of northern Afghanistan as well as with um, refugee communities in Pakistan and 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 Europe one gets to hear a different story um, once the sort of Censorships are uh, are lifted and, and the government control of um historical discourse and nationalist discourses lifted so suddenly there's this new new line of investigation that opens up and lots of questioning of well you know are these uh are these discourses that you find in colonial histories are they actually true or have they been manipulated um so, yes, yeah, so that, that, that also is, is, is another thing that is really based or, or sort of undergirding what, what I write is what I hear from other Afghans and um, what they tell me and what they say. Uh, and, and increasingly, a number of Persian sources that, that are coming, um, coming out. There's quite a few Afghans now publishing some good Afghan scholarship coming out from, from various universities as well that it all feeds into something like um, this book.
1: That's great, and I, I actually want to turn now to um, another kind of important decision you made when writing the book, which is the chronology that you use. You know, you, you start the book in 1260, um, but really in that first section of the book, you provide an overview of this period, 1260 to 1737. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, what is significant about the year 1260? Um, and maybe if you could illuminate like how does how does your chronology um, contrast or or overlap with um, these kind of nationalist narratives that you're talking about uh coming from the contemporary uh, mm-hmm. afghan state
0: what what twelve sixty is actually a pretty arbitrary date um we had a long discussion um myself and the editor about what what do we call this book um i i Somewhat whimsically, said uh, we should call it Afghanistan: uh, the rise and fall of Afghanistan. But I thought that was a, was a little bit too pretentious. Um, and we we had a debate about it, and they eventually said, "Well, look, why don't we just start at 1260, um, which is the the point where the the Mongol Empire broke up into three major components?" Having said that, uh, I mean. Where do you start a book on the history of Afghanistan? Um, I, I mean, a lot of, a lot of modern histories and, and indeed colonial histories tend to start at, at seventeen forty-seven, which is when Ahmad Shah was elected in inverted commas as as king of Afghanistan in both colonial and nationalist discourse. Um, I wanted to go back beyond that and 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 look at the way in which the the, the whole idea of Afghan, oh, Afghan tribes, particularly the Durrani and the Gilzais, where they came from, how they, how they um, came into political prominence, particularly during the period of the Ghurid and Ghaznavid Empire, and the Sultanate of, um, of Delhi, which you know, we're talking about the 11th, 12th century, 13th century. And, and I think that's important in terms of understanding the history of Afghanistan, since um since the, the the involvement of particular afghan tribes particularly the Khalji and the lodi tribes in having in sovereignty over essentially northern india and, and parts of afghanistan has had an important impact i think on on the whole evolving of the idea of um Afghanistan as as being an Afghan state, of being Pashtun orientated. I, I think that's very much a something that is embedded within within the discourse. Uh, quite often, you find uh, Pashtun mm. Pashtuns referring backwards to people like Khushal Khan Khattak, uh, the great Pashtun poet of the Mughal era, and his engagement on with the moguls and then his opposition to the moguls so so we we see that ruling elites in afghanistan very much engaged with this whole history of of the pre durrani uh, northern india particularly and their role in it as opposition to the moguls and then their alliance with the moguls um so i i wanted to embed the rise of the whole idea of afghanistan in the in the medieval period in the, in the uh, in the pre- and post-Mogul period. So so as I say, the date is the kind of an arbitrary one, but you kind of have to sort of say something somewhere or other. Um, and uh, I actually wanted to go back and do a lot more about the earlier part of right, the rise of Islam and Islamization of the area, but there just wasn't room in the book to do that.
1: Yeah, we'll have to um we look forward to your your next book, which will tell us <laughs> about the Islamization of Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I, I think you just brought up a really good point, which is, you know, you're you're kind of tying in um the emergence of, of what we would call modern Afghanistan. And I think, you know, a lot of people, um, when they think of Afghanistan, um, it's it's most recent I mean, contemporary Afghanistan or like uh, modern Afghanistan, I guess, is what I want to say comes to mind. You know, Afghanistan of the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, and and then the present um, comes to mind. But I would I would venture a guess that far fewer people know about this kind of what Afghan, you know, the territory of contemporary Afghanistan was like uh, before the before the mid 18th century. And I think this is really interesting because. There, you have a compelling case for thinking about well, when does Afghanistan become its, its take its modern form? And um, one kind of major theme of the book uh, centers around this: the formation of modern Afghanistan and and how it emerged amidst the breakup of various surrounding empires, be it the Safavid uh, in in Iran, the Mughal Empire to the south, and the the Uzbek Empire uh, to the north, and. Is this, you know, my question for you is, is this the major theme around Afghanistan's formation and how does this impact ideas about what it means to be Afghan or what it means to to uh, be the Afghan state? And also, does it impact the future kind of aspirations or difficulties uh, that the state face moving from the eighteenth mid-18th century forward?
0: I think the... <sighs> In the histories, the, this, this whole sort of emergence of of the Durrani dynasty, which is a fact a the Sadozi dynasty, it's just the representative of one particular clan of the Durrani tribe or the Abdali tribe, um, has been very muted. Uh, the That's why I've spent quite a bit of time in the early chapter discussing you know, the rise of of the Sadozi um, power under the, uh, the patronage of the Safawids and how their rivals and allies occasionally, the Barakzai, which is another branch of the um, Abdali tribe, were manipulated um, by the Mughals because of this competitive, uh, competitive um confrontation between the Safavids and the Mughals over the control of Kandahar, which was an important frontier town and quite wealthy in the 17th and 18th century. Um, that tends to be not really talked about much in uh, in the colonial histories. Uh, and to a certain extent, also in, in Afghan histories, so much is focused on you know the founding sort of myths of Ahmad Shah Durrani and his conquests of India in the mid eighteenth century, um, and then often in colonial histories you kind of gloss over the first sort of like thirty, forty, fifty years, and you really want to get into the into the really serious stuff, which is you know colonial history and British engagement, particularly with Afghanistan and the first Afghan War, which is written about ad nauseum. Uh, so and. That there is really a sort of a lack of understanding, I think, in history in Afghan historiography of these roots um, that go way back into northern India, into Persia, and and into the Uzbek Hanate of Bukhara, all of which had played, I think, a major influence on um, what is now Afghanistan, and to a certain extent still does um you know the nationalist movement in northern afghanistan for example amongst Uzbeks still refer backwards to the tukai Timurid um dynasty of Balkh, which was you know and when Balkh was uh, an appanage of of bukhara I, in iran um you know the, there's still a remnant of uh, large shia population and, and there still is quite a lot of affinity with with iran and uh, but Iran itself still claims sovereignty over, over parts of eastern Afghanistan. and uh, So the whole thing, I think, is undergirding this whole uh, evolution of, of Afghanistan and its politics and its international relations. And I don't think that has been properly addressed and, and needs to be put into, into a, a much wider and lengthier historical um, discourse and context. So, so I yeah, think and- I, I think that rooting the safawi mogul Uzbek, I think, has a lot to do with what emerges in terms of you know the way in which Afghan governments react in its international relations. A uh, the confrontation with Persia went on right the way through the 19th century and into the 20th century over frontiers. Um, the same with you know, with India and the Northwest frontier, and then that's transformed into the Pashtunistan issue of um, um, confrontation between Pakistan and Afghanistan um, in the fifties and sixties. Um, and also I think possibly undergirding it as well is, is the historic rivalry between um, Turkic, like Mongolian groups and, and Afghan groups that, that you find in the Sultanate period. Um, you know, with with sultanate, um sultanate there. Uh, Delhi, Some of them were Turkic. Some of them were were Afghan or um, Halji or Lodi. And that rivalry, I, I I kind of wonder how much that carries over historically into um into af into the Afghan state in the sort of eighteenth and early nineteenth centuries. So I don't think that's something that's been explored very much, but um certainly an attempt to refer backwards and annex um, sometimes to annex the Turkic history to the um, to legitimize certain things that the Afghan government does so um, there's a famous um, visit um, to Ghazni of of Indian nationalists and uh, the Afghan government started to sort of uh, try to claim some sort of close link with the Gusnavids and, uh, you know, the, so the use of historical uh, dynasties, that her, you know, famous dynasties like the Ghaznavids and the Ghurids, uh for dynastic purposes. Uh, so I, I think that medieval context um, and the Mughal period and is actually quite important in understanding the way Afghanistan sees itself and in its international relations as well, even.
1: Yeah, and I think this is interesting because this kind of puts Afghanistan into like a in, into this Persianate context in terms of thinking about how messy these kind of nation-building projects, um, be it in you know Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Iran, um, it can be. Because as as you talk about it in the book, um, there's kind of and what I like about the book is you're telling the, the history of Afghanistan, but you're also telling us about the kind of the emergence of, of something like a foundational myth in Afghanistan surrounding the, the Pashtun um, essence of of the Duranis. And you even say, and you know, you show at different times that, that um, this overlooks the, the Persianate side of, of the Abdali tribe or of the Duranis um, from which Ahmad Shah um, comes from. And I'm thinking even you know the 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 Afghan state really begins with the uh, assassination of a persian um Persian ruler um by the hands of of afghan is that right um so it's it it's interesting for at least maybe i i mischaracterize that but it's interesting to think how these things are connected um despite this kind of and, and and to think about the ways that this Push uh, identity uh, becomes so essential to the state building project of the time.
0: I think I think the um, I think the Push thing is really <sighs> becomes a a, a a major phenomenon in, in the very late nineteenth century, and and then um, I mean there's this point in in when Amir Abd Rahman Khan in in eighteen eighties. Um, the emir of the time, who he he, he tells this this uh, Gilzai tribe, which he's um, essentially forcibly relocating into parts of uh, northwestern Afghanistan for the frontier, saying to them that in fact that, that because you're Pashtuns, you have the right um, to 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 be you know to be in charge and 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 it's your country and and you know you have the superior rights to land and and that kind of discourse begins to emerge and and of course that is then taken up um partly during the reign of Habibullah and and then by mahmoud Parsi of course and and the the young afghan groups and and then later evolved into much more sort of structured nationalist discourse under uh the dynasty of Nadir Shah and People like um, Daoud. uh I, I think it's it's not a big thing that, reading the histories prior to that it's not a big thing i mean, in many ways the state um you know the it, i think the the emirs of Afghanistan saw themselves very much a part of uh, of the sort of general um dynastical uh reigns of uh, dynastical uh, countries like uh, it ran their country very much like um like they did the mogul Mughal, the moguls or the um or the safavids uh, i don't know to what extent that they saw themselves as a sort of Pashtuns um, they tended to see to regard themselves more in, in tribal terms as as you know parts of the of the Sadozai royal line. Um, I, I think that's something that hasn't really been examined a great deal, and I think there's still questions about, you know, to, to how far can you take, trace this whole idea of, of uh, Pashtun supremacy backwards into um, into the say, 18th century. Uh, I, I think it, with a lot of Afghan nationalist discourse that was evolved in the early 20th century, a lot of it is rewriting of history in uh, the image of um of its new nationalism um the, the the kings and the rulers seem to just just carry on as as like any other ruler would do um their models were very much the mogul and the Safavid model and and um yeah they just ruled um i think partly the intervention and the involvement of british um ethnography and Uh, politics also helped to reinforce this whole idea of Afghan-ness. But, uh, you know, it's rather like saying that the Ottomans were Turks. Well, you know, it's an an anachronism. I mean, the Ottomans were Ottomans, and they talked about being Ottomans, not so much as being Turks. And so I, I think same as applied in Afghanistan, and we need to be very careful how far we try and rewrite this backwards into into the early history of the rise of the Durrani Kingdom.
1: Absolutely, um, and and something that you brought up um, just as you were uh, explaining that point, um, you know, I'm thinking. So I, I just asked. Uh, a couple of questions ago, I asked about, um, how the breakup of these various empires, the Safavid, the Mughal, the Uzbek, have impacted the founding of the Afghan state. But, um, even as we move forward in the 18th and 19th century, Afghanistan as a developing state continues to find itself facing a number of external threats, uh, be it from Persia, Bukhara, um, from the Sikhs down in the south, um, and later from, from Russia and Britain and i'm curious if if there you know because you've studied um you know this entire stretch of history do you see any recurring themes in terms of how afghan rulers deal with these various challenges are there any um threads that kind of connect uh these responses and and, and is there any kind of new perspective on on how these these experiences have impacted uh, the Afghan state or the development of Afghan society, um, you know, kind of, as you said, moving beyond the typical um, British-centered kind of study of Afghans.
0: Oh, well, I, I mean, the, the, how the Afghans' rulers dealt with the, the challenges, external challenges, and, and indeed internal challenges to, to their power, I, I actually think they, they did rather badly, uh, I mean, the, the history of um, Sadozai um, rule is 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 pretty dysfunctional. Uh, I mean, the Sultanate of Herat, um, I think there was something like 10 rulers in the space of eight years or something like that. Um, lots of rivalry, lots of, of quite bitter um, feuding going on. And if uh, you read the history of even Ahmed Shah, who is sort of seen as this of of the founding father of afghanistan i mean he's he's constantly disposing of you know his cousins and rivals who who stand in his way you have civil wars that break out after the death of the amir and, and and the country has a history of 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 internecine fighting of of, of rivalry um, between different factions in 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 the in the of the dynastic uh, tribal groups. And so I actually don't think they handled it very well. Um, by and large, I, I think it comes a, this point where you, you you look at it and think, well, how can this country have actually survived uh, as an entity? Um, given again and again and again, it, it seemed to be hanging on the brink of being absorbed or being Carved up between Persia, the Sikhs, um, the Uzbek the and Uzbek uh, dynasty in the north, or every so often makes incursions into into northern Afghanistan, and and I, and I think probably the, you know they there was these attempts to try and make these alliances and temporary balancings of power between the different rival groups, and the Emirs were sometimes quite frantic in trying to. To do that um but I think to, it really comes down to the um to the involvement of of Britain in in the whole kind of cis, 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 cisindus area that um, the old idea that you know the defense of india the frontier uh, the, the fear of the invasion ended up with you know creating this entity um which in many ways was you know more of a colonial construct than than any kind of natural uh state um that had you know historic borders um and and you know in many ways the borders created more problems than than they solved as far as um long term solutions were concerned but as far as the british were concerned that these were convenient red lines and black lines on maps that you know, would be uh, hopefully a sufficient way of containing any possible threat from um, for, of invasion, either by the Afghans themselves, or by Persia, or, of course, then subsequently Russia. So I, I think, in many ways, I, as I say with talking about the reign of Dost Mohammad Khan, who was the emir that was overthrown in the First Afghan War. How, he, in many ways, he was the luckiest emir of them all because the British deposed him, damned him as, as untrustworthy. The British got badly beaten up in the First Afghan War and then allowed the emir to be reinstated. And within, uh, within a decade, the British were signing treaties with this man who they... Pre- treated as unreliable and as damned him in this famous similar declaration uh, and as a result of that, he started to get um, subsidies of arms and, uh, and and cash which allowed him to conquer parts of northern Afghanistan retake and eventually to retake Herat and Kandahar and unify um. This region, uh, which in many ways was, was not a unified entity at all, but was made up of, of three essentially three separate blocks the the West, which was historically under the rule of Persia, the North, which was Turco Mongolian, and, and the South, Southeast, which was part of the Mughal Empire. Um, so it has always been a big problem how to handle and how to keep these competitive elements within the state together, and, and, and in many ways, it, it, I think it was really the involvement of Britain that certainly helped the, survive, the survivability of, of a state which you know, looked as again and again as though it was just going to implode.
1: Well, you've begun to answer my, my next question, which was specifically about Anglo-Afghan encounters. Um, with two major British military in, interventions in the 19th century. Um, and you've kind of alluded to the fact that during the First Anglo-African War, you start to see more of a solidification of, of Afghanistan as a geographical, uh, political unit. Um, but are there any other ways in which these interventions shape the political landscape, the reality of Afghanistan across the century? And um, on top of that, I'm, I'm wondering if um, you know we're eventually going to talk about the, the Soviet invasion in the 1980s, and of course mm-hmm. the U.S.-led coalition invasion in the early 2000s. I'm curious if you can draw any parallels between those experiences. Um, are they? Do you see any similarities, or are they very historically contingent and therefore
0: different? <sighs> I think a couple of things there. I, I, I'm talking again about how I think in many ways the whole idea of Afghanistan was essentially was came out of colonial engagement with the emirs of, of the area. And uh, there's a lot of... Um, discussion going on in in academic circles now about the importance of the elphinstone mission in 1808 and 1809 and the ethnological work that they did and and that became a sort of foundation of of colonial visions of afghanistan and um the 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 way in which the elphinstone mission in a sense created the idea of the afghanistan state and and the confusion that occurs within um the voluminous reports of the Elfstone mission about the frontiers of of what was Afghanistan, um, the confusion between Afghanistan, the tribal areas on the the Indian frontier, which was the essentially the the, the Pashtun um, tribal zone, and and how that was conflated with the state that was being ruled by Shah Shuja, and. In many ways, the application of the term Afghanistan to to the political entity ruled by the Emirs was was very much a, a British construct. Um, so, in in some ways, the, the British had had a lot to do with the actual sort of creating of the vision of of, of, of Afghanistan. I mean, obviously, subsequently in the late nineteenth century, it even negotiated the drawing of its frontiers with. Uh, with Persia, and with the well, then the Sov- with the, then Russia after the conquests of Bukhara and Khiva, and also, of course, with the the Durand Line. Um, so I think, in many ways, that the interventions, the military interventions of the first and second Afghan War, um, had a, an impact. To agree, but I think more important was was the the alliance that Britain. Uh, created with the Emirs after the fall of the Sikh Empire, Uh, the creation of Afghanistan as a a buffer state, as a a sort of margin of uh, safety against potential military action from initially in the Napoleonic era from France, but also then from Persia, who still claims sovereignty over Herat and and then subsequently of course of the Russian advances in Central Asia which became really a major threat and uh, in, in many ways I think that British engagement with that area certainly helped create um, a state that we have now. Um, it certainly British Policy was to you know maintain a friendly emir on the throne. So uh, we find uh, in both the first and second Afghan wars an attempt at regime change, which which of course is we come back come to the both to the Soviet and to the uh, U.S. coalition invasion. You know, the whole idea of regime change—that's going to sort of sort of fix it if we can have a a friendly ally um, who will do what we. You know, we tell them um, that will protect our frontiers and you know keep us keep our country safe. Uh, and by and large, we, we find in the, the sort of records of the India correspondence, and although that that actually worked to a degree, there's this constant frustration with with um, the emirs, their apparent lack of ability to. To do what the British tell them to do, uh, their turbulence of of their own dynastic politics, and um, it, yeah, so in many ways, Britain tried to control Afghanistan. But it, in some ways, it worked. But in, in very often, it was it was very frustrating. Um, and I, I think that that's probably true of any foreign power that's intervened in Afghanistan. Because the Afghans are interested in their own self-interest and and in their own survival. And if somebody comes along and hands them a few million dollars, um, that's very nice, thank you very much, because then that can then be dispersed and can be used to to buy loyalties. But it doesn't necessarily contribute to stability, and sometimes it actually increases the instability.
1: right and i think we'll get um some of those themes will come up again towards the end of the interview um i'd like to talk more about uh the two latest military interventions um in afghanistan um but yeah thank you for that um and so as we are kind of moving um into the 20th century um you know, there's a lot in this book that we aren't covering. But one thing that really struck me, I guess, coming from um, the field of, of Russian and Soviet history um, was the question about these uh, Basmachi, you know, and, and kind of not just the Basmachi who were um, basically resistance fighters in Central Asia against the Soviet regime uh, in the in the 20s and 30s. Um, but what really struck me is is how, one, how diverse uh, this region of North Afghanistan truly was. And I know it has its own history of being kind of colonized from the south, um, but also how disruptive um, change, you know, the fall of the Russian Empire and, and, and collectivization in, in the Soviet Union, uh, which really created a refugee crisis of sorts. Um, when all of these people fleeing the Fergana Valley, fleeing different parts of Central Asia wound up in northern Afghanistan. And I think, you know, we talk about the history of Afghanistan, its relations with the Soviet Union, which were, um, as your book shows, constantly developing, constantly changing. Um, But I think this aspect of the story that actually so many... I don't know. I'm just thinking about the ways that, that those events that happened in Soviet Central Asia really affected, um, the way Afghanistan looked, uh, across the 20th century, but also today and how this might have actually, uh, how this influenced the history and, and how this, um, creates different kind of problems, um, for the Afghan state. Um, yeah. So that's more of just an observation. But if you wanted to respond to any of that, be happy to listen.
0: I think there's not. I mean, there's there's, there's a, a fair bit written about the Basimachi movement. I think from a partly from a Turkish point of, from point of view and 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 the involvement of of Turkish um, uh, commanders and, and leading this and 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 the whole issue of. Um, of the resistance to uh particularly to sovietization the there's not so much written about the the afghan side of things and uh in a sense it's something that um is not particularly included in 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 afghan discourse i i think in many ways it, it it posed a really big problem for for the emirs in in the 1920s um there was a major uh exodus of Turkmen, Uzbeks, as well as Buharan Jews um, and Tajiks um, from Tajikistan, what is now Tajikistan, across the Amu Darya into northern Afghanistan. Um, I mean, it's probably, maybe, I don't know, I haven't seen any figures, but it's possibly several, hundred, several score thousands, maybe even as many as 100,000 people. That posed really major problems for the Afghan state. First of all, they had to be housed and fed and accommodated, and but also um, the Emirs, um, Aminullah Khan, began to support the Basmachi movement um, as a means of trying to undermine uh, the Russian control of, of of the of Central Asia. Only for his some of his generals to say, "Well, look, <laughs> you realize that you know." You, arming these guys um, and and sending them across the frontier is going to actually create problems uh, for us by giving the Russians the justification they need to invade. And on at least two occasions, uh, the Soviet forces actually crossed into northern Afghanistan in pursuit of Basmachi leaders. Uh, but the other thing was is that, that there's, a, <laughs> there's been this long history, going back to the mid-19th century of an ease about the fact that um, the the northern parts of Afghanistan, which used to be part of the Bukharan Khanate, um, and which were ruled by um, members, princes of the Bukharan line, had, had been annexed to Afghanistan, to the Durrani state from the 1840s onwards. Um, partly encouraged by the British who who saw that for the Afghans to have strength in depth in their northern frontier would also help their strategy of the defense of India. And and we have this period of, of something like fifty years of, of really bitter war going on between the surviving emirs and Hakims and walis of the Uzbek dynasties. And the Afghan state, and it was a pretty bloody war, and uh, lots of lots of um, lots of uh, cartooging and throwing. Um, the north also became a, a, a useful point of rebellion um, and as for rebels and flight of um, dissidents. Uh, there was this famous revolt in 1888 of the emir's cousin, Issa Khan, which really overthrew the emir. So there's this whole problem of having to how to control the north. And the fear with the Basmachi movement was that, that these Basmachis could just turn on the Afghan state and just declare um, independence or start another civil war in the north. And with the uh, Aminullah's control over the kingdom increasingly tenuous, um, and also Nadir Shah has succeeded him. This whole idea of that you know, well, as as good Muslims, we should support these basmachis, but at the same time, we don't really want them uh, causing trouble in northern Afghanistan. So in the 1930s and 40s, we we find the suppression of the basmachi movement in northern Afghanistan, which was quite bloody. Um, and it's still remembered today. Uh, I mean, I can remember sitting in Peshawar in the 1980s talking to a man who was in his 90s um, who was telling me stories of his father who, who'd fought the Afghans in, in northern Afghanistan during the, the 1920s. And it, it's extraordinary how these um, memories have persisted and carried on down through the, through the age. And, and there is still st- quite a strong nationalist movement in Afghanistan in the north. And as I mentioned in the book, I, there's this group in New York that the, Af- the Turkistanian organization, which is run by, um, well, was run. Whether he's still alive, I don't know. But run by a, a Turkmen actually who comes from Anhoy, and whose ancestors were also part of the Basmachi movement and refugees. So, so for the I think the the whole northern thing has always been a, a big problem for um, the Afghan state of how to control it. The fear that it could be used as a um, as a sort of base for revolt against the, the central government, but also for uh, a nationalist movement.
1: Yeah, and it's I mean once again it's just interesting because I think the The theme that I keep picking up on is the way in which Afghanistan is really engaged with with kind of what's going on uh, in these neighboring regions and their you know with the i mean Britain obviously had a huge impact on the as we talked about the foundation of the Afghan state in the way that it formed across the nineteenth century but these these matters happening more locally across different borders also um, play a, a major role in, in how Afghanistan comes to imagine itself and and the different problems that they, that Afghan, um, rulers and, and, and bureaucrats have to, um, deal with. Um, and this also struck me when I was, when I was reading the section in your book on, um, Mahmoud Tarzi and the young Afghans who were actually inspired by what was happening, uh, with the young Turks and Kemal in Turkey, um, and and my question was: Does this aspect of Afghan history, um, which which comes at a moment when there's an appearance of new kind of ideologies, I would say like modernizing ideologies, um, does this mark a turning point in the 20th century, um, or was it already present earlier in the 19th century? Um, because I you know I'm thinking specifically of of Marxism playing such a major role in the politics of the twentieth century. Um and I feel like we can trace that back to this moment when all of the empires of of uh Europe and, and the Russian Empire is collapsing. Um when the you know in that way it's kind of interesting to compare um the history of Afghanistan intellectually to what's happening in Russia, for instance. Um but yeah I'm I'm curious, is this a turning point um in Afghan history?
0: I think tazi is 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 actually a very important figure i, I mean he he's he's referred to by uh, in sort of um state nationalist discourse as the father of afghan nationalism um i mean that that could be debated um i guess but he certainly was very very influential i, I think one of the things that he was one of the things that was important about tazi is through his um through his newspaper, um, the Siraj al-Akbar, he, he introduced um, a sort of Afghan intellectuals and uh, educated Afghans into a, a wider world. And uh, the discourse on, on nationalism that um, was being you know, debated in in Europe and in Turkey, which was, was very ethnocentrically based. And of course we have, all the way through the late nineteenth century, the the rise of of nationalist movements in like Greece and Bulgaria and um, amongst the Arabs, and and in a sense, he had, I think, a major role in introducing this whole idea of of identifying the state with one particular um, uh, ethnicity, which is the Afghans, and um, and promoting. Um, Pashto as the national language. Um, I think that was a process that was was begun probably towards, I mentioned sort of the late 19th century, but probably the beginning of the 20th century, partly through um, also the uh, opening of uh, Habibia um, High School, which was essentially for, well, Connected Muhammad's eyes, and and also the military academy as well, which also um, encouraged a, a sort of a new nationalism, which which Afghans, generally speaking, didn't have before. And I think it was all part of wanting to become part of the modern world and become part of a nation state that you have to have a, a sense of national identity um rather than just um the old system of loyalty to, to the Amirs, um which was done through a thing called the, the bite the, the oath of um office and the oath of uh, fealty which was so much in the medieval uh, tradition. The idea of trying to bind a disparate country which was often at war with itself um under one idea of, an, of a national identity which was, was based around um but loyalty to the dynasty. But also um, the idea of of afghanness uh, but of course in in some ways that as i, I argue in the book that, that that idea may have been fine in some way like amongst the turks and, and and the arab the Ottomans, but didn't really fit into the um, into the Afghan context because of the disparate nature of afghan society its multi ethnicity and it, different competing um ethnicities and regional factions, um, and promoting one particular ethnicity over and above everybody else actually is still a, a big problem um, and still heavily debated, you know, in in politics and, and even in conferences that, you know, you go to on, on Afghan identity. So, so in some ways, I think it was, Tazi, Tazi did play a major point uh, did part and the young Afghans in recreating the vision of the afghan state and and also rewriting aspects of afghan history um, but we also have i think a lot of influence of of indian nationalism um, there were indian nationalists anti british factions in uh, in the Afghan court uh, in the early nineteen in early twentieth century and Indian nationalism and also Islamic nationalism, if we can call it that, um, also played a major part in defining the way in which the Afghanistan in the 20th century evolved into uh, a state which was more formally Islamic and um, was also increasingly Pashtunized um, uh, to the exclusion quite often of other identities.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's just interesting to think about, you know, um how how this I just can't get over how these ideologies, you know, push in this case push in nationalism but also uh marxism and then um yeah, I don't know, I guess other probably modernizing ideologies come into play um in after 1991, but it's curious to see how these kind of create new categories that people organize around in Afghan politics. Um, And I guess I did have one question about, about Marxism in particular, which seems to play such a major role up until um, I guess, until the Soviet, well, through the Soviet invasion and then probably at least until the Soviets leave in, in 1989. does it, does it have an afterlife um, in Afghan politics post-1989, or does, does the experience of occupation really um, kind of quell, defang Marxism in a way?
0: There still is. Um, there, there still is. A, I think a, there is a, still a Marxist movement, and, and it's not just Marxism, but Maoism. I mean, Maoism was um, very popular amongst certain sections of the Hazara communities. Um, in the uh, in the 60s and onwards um, in many ways it, it, it's ironic given given sort of the, the foundational views on marxism and um, on ethnicity and nationalism um, but very often the, the marxism in in Afghanistan became a kind of an ideology that gave people who felt they were disenfranchised particularly non Non Pashtun communities, or non people who are excluded by the Durrani uh, supremacy, uh, a, a kind of an identity and, and an ideology which seemed to be able, to, seemed to be promising them equality, uh, uh, a stake in national, uh, in the in the nation, in, in um, you know in, in education and so on, which they often have been disenfranchised from. Um, But as you probably know, I mean, the the, the Marxist parties in Afghanistan also split along, often along um, ethnic lines. And and you have the Haukis, which tend to be very dominated by Gilzai Pashtuns, and Parchan, which tend to be the the party of choice of non-Pashtun peoples. Um, And then you have the Maoist group as well. Um, and they were often at each other's throats as much as the Islamists were with the Marxist groups. So in in many ways, the factionalism that one finds within the political structures of Afghanistan were also reflected um, within the Marxist movements in Afghanistan. I I don't know to what extent one can say it's survived. I mean, I don't really think it, it poses a serious political challenge or ideological challenge anymore, but there are many, many Afghans who I meet whose fathers um, or they themselves at one time were members of, you know, the, the Najibullah or Taraki regime um, and who were not part of the exil Islamist resistance. Um, and uh, But they have... I suppose they've become just more secularist than, um, than ideological Marxists. They've, they've become, I think, many of them are exiles and just basically become secular Westerners in, in many ways and engage in secular activity. Um, their Islamic heritage sits fairly lightly on their shoulders. Um, they're more interested in their own um, um, family and and ethnological histories. Um, than they are in in any particular ideology, I think. So I, I think in some ways it has survived. I, I'm actually not really sure how much one could say that Marxism is a, still a major factor in the politics of Afghanistan. I, I think probably not. I think the Soviet invasion and and the uh, sub and the, the failures of the actual. Um, Soviet-backed regimes, Um, basically it was a death knell for for any kind of real political uh, stake in the post-Soviet Afghanistan. Many of the leaders, of course, packed up and left and were given asylum in various uh, Eastern European countries, and some of them um, fled to um, Russia and uh, were given asylum there.
1: I think we're coming to the near to the end of the interview so I, I when when you were talking about or I guess when we were talking about the um Soviet invasion what I was thinking about too is is you have this another kind of theme I see running through the book um is this idea that that Afghanistan as a state continues to survive these what should be um, insurmountable challenges, um, extreme challenges. Um, and and in fact, you, you say that the country has managed to survive vicissitudes of the colonial and post-colonial eras. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you talk at length about the extraordinary, extraordinary hubris of American decision makers in in the early 2000s. Um, and I think few would contest that the U.S.-backed invasion of Afghanistan has has continued to contribute to the economic, political, and social destruction of the country. Um, yet the country appears to to remain, while well, devastated, intact. Um, and I think as historians, um, this is this is a puzzle worth thinking about. Um, and I wanted to ask you, from your perspective, what's the reason for this persistence? Are there any underlying reasons or or themes that we can we can trace in the deeper history of Afghanistan um, or at least in the 19th, 20th, early 20th, 21st century uh, that, that can give us some hints about why this might be?
0: Well, I think if you look back into the history, I mean, even the British involvement in Afghanistan, there's this debate goes on fairly constantly about, well, you know, what do we do about Afghanistan? Would it be easier to annex Kandahar, or would it be easier just to, you know, allow the Russians to to help themselves to Herat? Um, how do we how do we deal with this this sort of area of of territory ruled by the Emirs, which is often not doing what we want it to do? Um, and, and in the end, you find the British. Um, Officials deciding well, it, 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 in the end, it's easier to, to just keep supporting the emirs and, and keep this country sort of keep it going and prop it up, rather than risk another military intervention, which could, you know, turn to custard, um, or which could participate the very thing that we we don't want, which is a, a Russian invasion. So in many ways, it was a pragmatic decision of just basically we don't want to get our hands dirty anymore and, and, and end up with another bloody nose. And I think to a certain extent that that is still, I mean, a lot of American and British um, and even UN um, views of Afghanistan are still rooted in the old colonial um, ideas. And, and the idea is that I think that it's probably easier to keep the country, try and hold the country together than, than let it fall into a, you know, into – the sort of situation that it was like in the 1990s, where uh, you had regional commanders who virtually acted as independent uh, rulers, and um, without with very little knowledge of the central government in Kabul. Um, because once you break allow a state to break up, then there's all sorts of risks of it being annexed for to you know Islamist uh, agendas or something like that. And one of the interesting things that that did happen was just shortly after the, the the american intervention there was um the there was a suggestion that um Patty Ashton, ashdown who's the um the uh, british um leader of the liberal party who who was then appointed as kind of like supremo of over the the post yugoslavian breakdown and it was him who really essentially uh, argue for the breakup of the Yugoslav state into in, into these different ethnic sort of centered eth- um, entities of Croatia and Bosnia and so on, and it was mooted that Paddy Astan should become you know the, this sort of UN supremo that you know that supervises and and supervises the the post. 2002 intervention and Karzai rejected him out of hand and I'm sure the reason why was because of his record in, in basically dismembering Yugoslavia and and that's something that the Afghan government never wanted and realized that the potential for, for chaos as well there. So I, I think in terms of the, the wider geopolitics. I think the decision was that you know we we tr- we try and hold this country together, and if that means subsidising the government and um, and its army and trying to uh, trying to contain the growing revolt of the Taliban and other insurgencies, then then it's it's better than letting it fall apart. Uh, locally, I mean, in, inside Afghanistan, I, I think one of the remarkable things that you find when you you spend your Spent time traveling through villages and communities in outside of Kabul. You find that, that that Afghanistan is very rural Afghanistan is very different to what's happening in Kabul. They they have their own networks right the way through all the troubles of the 90s and of the Soviet invasion. Um, a form of kind of government survived at subnational level. Uh, local peers, local religious leaders, village elders, um, as well as um, commanders who were both good and bad have, have somehow managed to maintain and hold the communities together and communities continue to function despite the war and the collapse of central authority and and that's very much true in all my experience of afghanistan is is that you know communities have to work together to share resources like water um labor, and often do this without Bothering even to consult the local authorities, who they see as essentially um, more, more trouble than they're worth because bribery is involved and local officials are not educated. They don't understand the local area. They often come from another part of the country and, and they're only there because it's a good job. So I think the national, sub national government, if you can call it that, or uh, networks so are the thing that has really kept the country going and the helm system the extended family all these things function as a sort of state within a state I suppose as a, a, a kind of a, an alternative form of management of local resources of keeping these together and uh, it's, it's very often the state is seen as, as as a nuisance or actually more more of a problem um, than solving anything. Um, uh, I think that's one of the things that one finds in Afghanistan, um, the strength of of local networks that hold things together, that bring people together, that resolve conflicts, um, and, and which often just don't have any links very much with, with actual government itself and central government.
1: and i think that's yeah like perhaps a good place to end you know um i really like the way that you end the book in your conclusion by mentioning that you know the, the potential for uh withdrawal of foreign funding military support is, is definitely on the table in contemporary afghanistan and one can only wish that afghans um We'll get the the yeah. We'll get the support and 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 you know that basically that they deserve better uh, than to be condemned um, to kind of this perpetual insecurity and uncertainty. Um, and I think that's kind of a good way to walk away from this discussion. Um, yeah. Well, one, one wishes I know. them Did well. you
0: want to add yeah. Well, I, I, you, know, you I mean, I spent so many so much of my life, actually all of my life involved in, in the area and uh, in one way or another, either living there or or studying it. And 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 one can't do that without actually coming away with, with a real fondness and love for the country and the people. And you do really wish them them well and hope that, you know, that somehow or other things will all get it sorted out. I, I think the problem is is, is that Foreign powers tend to sort of think that they can fix it. And in fact, in trying to fix it, they make things worse because they just don't understand how things work and they put the wrong people into power. Um, and then they just pay them to stay in power so that they can do foreign powers biddings. And uh, I think somehow other, Afghanistan has to work out its own salvation. Um, and and the, this whole tradition of living off what, what the they used to call the money from God, uh, which is foreign subsidies and foreign aid, and uh, you know, somehow or other that's got to have to be addressed um, because it's so much easier just to sit there and, and and you know just keep sucking in the millions of dollars, putting you know half of it into your bank account, and then spending the rest of it on prestige projects um, it, Sustainability, you know, any any country, any state has to be essentially learn eventually have to be sustainable. It just just can't survive otherwise. And I think that is the big question that will face Afghanistan. And it's been masked by a series of interventions. Um, one, it has to learn to be somehow or other sustainable financially, but also develop uh, an idea of nationalism that is inclusive. Uh, that is not confrontational, and that accepts differences, whether that is religious or ethnic or regional, um, and, and create um, something that is different to what it has been before. And mm-hmm. I think that is really the major challenge that faces Afghanistan. And unfortunately, it, sadly, said, some of the people in power don't want to see that. Although, having said that, I, I know of lots of particularly younger um, Afghans who really would like to see things different and change um, and often they're hindered in that by um, embedded prejudices and uh, embedded attitudes and we just don't know what will happen I mean every time one writes something on Afghanistan, he's to think, "Well, you know can this country survive and and yet somehow or other, people just manage to get on their li on with their lives they manage to Survive, make a living, and 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 in the end, um, you know, manage to circumvent, if necessary, you know, the machinations of local politicians. Um, so, so in many ways, there's there's a deep survivability within the system, but that has to be tapped, and something has to develop at a, a national level as well, which which goes beyond what what is what it what they have now. <laughs> Uh, um, and if not, then, then one can only just see that it's a prescription for yet more conflict and, um, uh, yeah, a more civil war.
1: Yeah, I think that's not the most positive picture, but I think that's like a fair way to um, kind of wrap up um, our mm. discussion. Um, so, Jonathan, I, I really wanted to thank you uh, for, for sitting down and talking about uh, – your book today um and before we go I did want to give you the opportunity to tell us about any um projects that you might be working on or at least scheming about um related to Afghanistan or or anything else
0: Well I i now, I now live in New Zealand I'm actually British born but I've been living in New Zealand now since 2007 and the one thing I've been looking at recently is what is new zealand's connection with afghanistan historically and i've been finding quite a few interesting archives particularly of british military personnel who retired to afghan from Af- who were served in india and often in the afghan wars and retired to new zealand so i'm looking at some archives here but my my major project at the moment is 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 another one of these these long term ones um I, I've been always wanting to find out more about the Armenian community in Afghanistan, which is which is a a, a Christian community that very little is evident, is known about, but it appears in nineteenth century sources every so often, um, with their leaders hosting people like um Masson and uh and Sterling and others. So I, I've been working on this project really now for twenty years <laughs> on and off. Um Trying to dig out information that I, you know, from things like the India Office Library, but also I've been working very hard in the Church Missionary Society archives in Birmingham uh, because the Armenian community was expelled from Afghanistan in 1896 by Amir Abdul Rahman Khan, and many of them settled in Peshawar and taken in by the local missionaries. And some of their descendants ended up um, working for the uh, mission hospital there. So I've been trying to kind of put all that together and accumulate information about them and and I've come up with actually quite a lot of information which I'm in the process of trying to publish. Um so that's my next really major prog- program but I I have I have actually quite a lot of work. Um I am I'm, I'm technically semi-retired now. I was 70 in July. But it seems like I'm getting more and more things that I need to do before I I finally can't do it anymore. <laughs> Um so I'm kept busy. Well,
1: yeah, absolutely. And we you know if once you've published that book, we'd love to have you back on the podcast. <laughs> um so thanks again, Jonathan, for okay. sitting down and talking to us about um your book, Afghanistan History from Twelve Sixty to the Present, uh published in twenty eighteen by Reaction books So
0: thanks. Okay, thank you. And uh Goodbye and nice to have talked to you all and I hope that our discussion has been helpful for some of your listeners